before I forget, I would like to take this opportunity to talk about our financial conference, the Code Green Financial Literacy Conference for Physicians, happening on February 2nd, 2024 in Toronto at the Novotel Hotel in North York, which is straight in front and across the street from the North York Centre subway station, so easily accessible by public transit. So please come and join us for this wonderful full-day in-person conference speaking about financial literacy that is geared towards physicians. If you want to learn more, please go to www.codegreenfinancial.com. Again, it's www.codegreenfinancial.com to learn more about the conference, look up the speakers and the guests and the topics. It's a full day conference starting at 7.30 in the morning with a breakfast, a lunch, two nutritional breaks, and even a wine and cheese. So lots of food, lots of learning, lots of opportunities to ask questions to our guest speakers, lots of time to network and to mingle, and also learn about something that has been deficient in our training, and that is financial literacy which is very important because I strongly believe that financial literacy or the lack thereof is directly tied to our burnout. So please come and join us for this conference. I am sure you will have a wonderful time. So please meet us at this conference on February 2nd, 2024 and visit us at www.codegreenfinancial.com. The early bird is up to December 31st and the price is $150 plus tax per person and after December 31st it will be $200 plus tax per person. So the website again to visit us and learn more is www.codegreenfinancial.com. Hope to see you all there. Uh, okay, so we're doing a top 10 mid-career or late late career? No, we did the mid-career. Yeah. So we're going to do the late career. Planning to work too long. Is it that we're planning to work too long or we haven't planned to stop working? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so when you're talking to someone who's in their mid career, you know, one of the things people will do is be like, oh, I can just earn income forever. And so let's plan for me to work until I'm at least seven. And then you go like, you know, I get that you're going to want to, but planning to do that is problematic. It's foolish to believe that you will be able to work forever if that's the cornerstone of your financial plan. And then I think maybe from a planning point of view, I'm trying to think of how to say this, but understanding when your planning objectives are no longer about retirement, but about legacy. In, in doing all the stuff that I've been doing over the last few years and trying to correct course my own for financial plan, I've oriented already my financial roadmap towards 
retirement and estate planning. Right. So I didn't do retirement and then estate planning. I've done it right from the get-go. Yeah. My question to you is, is, is it proper to say when you start your planning, like even when you're 35, 36, 40, that you should have estate planning in mind even then, or is that too soon? financial health doc welcome to the financial literacy podcast for healthcare professionals where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo okay well good morning welcome everybody back to the show how is my financial health doc podcast and i am your host Vuket Tran still here still alive taking a short pause because of uh, different uh, things happening at the same time. But uh, I'm glad to be back uh, with you guys. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about the top 10 financial mistakes made by physicians in late career. And this is a follow-up of a topic that we did recently with my good friend, uh, Jamie List. We did a topic on Tom top 10 financial mistakes made by physician in mid-career. And this is a follow-up to that as we promised. So welcome back to the show, Jamie. Thanks for having me back, Vu. Are you excited that we're going to be talking about a bunch of mistakes today? <laughs> uh, they're, you know, theoretical mistakes, let's call it. But um, yeah, I mean, I think the list we have is is just a good primer for, uh, you know, cautionary tales of what you should be thinking about as you are in your early and mid-career so as to not end up uh, in any of these states really in your late career. Absolutely. I mean, uh, as a as a primary care physician, I'm all about prevention. And so if we can prevent uh, these mistakes from happening in early and mid-career, that would be wonderful. Unfortunately, uh, I see a lot of my peers and colleagues ending up uh, with these mistakes because they haven't done the proper planning or... Not that they haven't done, to be honest, I'll be really honest, is because they did not know. Uh, This is not something we talk about. Financial literacy is not within our realm of expertise. And it's, you know, honestly not taught in med school and in residency. So how would we be expected to know this? Of course not. So this is something that we are trying to change. Uh, This podcast is trying to change. A bunch of us are trying to change. And Jamie, you're helping us with that. I look forward to it. So let's start. Uh, we've we've built a top ten. So for those of you who remembers the David Letterman show, you would know what top ten list is. Jamie, I think you and I are from that same era. David Letterman, you've you've heard you've seen that show before. Seen it and was a big fan. I used to watch it a lot in university, and less so obviously given the time of day uh, as life moved on. But yeah, big fan of David Letterman. That's right. So uh, let's let's start. Let's start with uh, our top 10. So what is the first one, Jamie? So the first one is uh, it's a it's a planning issue. And it's something that I think uh, affects especially high incomers who are confident in what they do and they enjoy what they do. It's sort of a natural error, I'm going to say, of judgment, which is planning to work too long. You're, you are right. I enjoy what I do. I think most of us enjoy what we do. Um, that's why we went into medicine. So we we want to 
almost work forever. And that is has a lot of benefits, obviously financial, emotional, psychological. Because the moment I stop working, you know, who am I? I've always identified myself as an eMERGE doc, or I've identified myself as a family doc, or as a surgeon. And once I retire, I'm no longer that. And so I don't really want to face that type of, you know, self act, self insight. So maybe that's what's driving us. But the other thing that's driving us, in my mind, is not that so much that we're planning to work too long, is that we haven't planned to not work as long. <laughs> and what I mean is, you know, we just work, 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 put our head down, work, work, work. And all of a sudden, oh, it's time to retire. But we never really planned it we just arrived all of a sudden and so not having that plan is is i think one mistake one of the consequences of that is we may stop working because of many reasons one we don't have the physical capacity anymore or we may not have the cognitive capacity anymore so we're forced to stop working uh, but uh, sometimes too early sometimes at a late stage and, and not having planned that means that I'm also working late into my career, my 70, 72, 79. I've seen physicians working till they're 82, which I don't think it's very healthy. Now, just because we ask and we say you should plan to retire early, when I say retire, I say with air quotes here, it doesn't mean that you have to stop working, go in a, into a corner and sob and die. That's not what we mean. What we mean is, you know, after retirement, you can probably now even do things that you wanted to do that you didn't have time to do before. And so what are those type of things that we can do? You know, volunteer work, do, you know, Médecins Sans Frontières or Doctors Without Border, participate in, you know, uh, a governance board uh, for hospitals or different charity agencies that you wanted to do, or even continue to work, but at least not being forced to work. And I think that's what you were alluding to. Am I right, uh, Jane? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, so when you're sort of walking through a financial plan with somebody and they're, you know, and I, I get a lot of, some of what we're going to talk to today is mistakes that are uh, accumulative uh, or accretive that you can, you can focus on both in mid and late career. But, uh, you know, it's very common for me to sit down with someone and say, okay, well, let's do a plan. And they say, well, plan for me to work till age seven which is different than the desire, right? So uh, if you want to work to age 70 and you are engaged in your uh, in the subject matter and in helping uh, your, your patients and your community at Harvard, you're, you're sort of accessing your career, the error is that it's going to happen, right? Because things change. So there is there are contingencies, there's problems, which we'll chat about later that kind of come up uh, during uh, your career, near the end of your career, health risks, uh, career risks, regulatory risks about what income level you're at. So what we generally try to do is say, okay, well, let's plan for that. And that's a reasonable sort of uh, projection. But really what we want to plan for is you being able to retire 10 or 15 years before that. And so what are the steps we need to take? If you want to work to age 70, what are the steps we need to take so that you don't have to work after 50 or 55 or 60? And so if you have done that planning throughout your career, by the time you are uh, a late career physician, you're comfortable in your ability to walk away, whether you want to or need to. That's that's exactly it. Now, we also, within this 
you know, category, we talked about Freedom 55, the concept of Freedom 55. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Uh, yeah, Freedom 55 would be same vintage as David Letterman. Um, so it was an ad campaign that that, that came out of London Life, which is um, almost no longer. Uh, London Life was bought by Canada Life but five or six years ago, maybe even longer. Um, their whole ad campaign was basically what I just described, which is you may want to work for X number of years, but a plan that gets you settled and free of worry uh, as soon as possible is ideal. And so that 55th year is the year that London Life picked for their ad campaign. It's not at all significant um, for any other reason that it was a, you know, it was a um, I think an admirable and uh, desirable choice, uh, aspirational choice for, you know, their target audience, which was people in their 40s and 50s who they wanted as clients. But the concept is still valid, which is, um, and it, it's a very, very, it did serve to educate, I think, whoever was part of that, you know, whoever was able to test it, which is stopping working is not the issue. Being able to stop working is the issue. It's the ability and the freedom and the choice that you want rather than being locked into something. And I think the problem that you would make as a physician, as you grow older, is planning to work that long and making decisions around that. So potentially not saving enough, spending too, spending too much, not saving enough, relying on that being able to occur later in life, where it may not for, for any number of reasons. I'm, I'm going to be 50 in about a month. So Freedom 55 means I've got five years to figure this out, Jamie. Hopefully, (laughs) best of luck. (laughs) See, that's what happens when you don't plan properly. Okay, so uh, this is a good segue into our next topic, uh, our next mistake, which it's a good mistake in some way. But, but not so good from a planning perspective. So having too much money. Now, no one's going to complain about having too much money. The problem is having too much money in a non-registered account or in the corporation. So what did we mean by that? There's, there's a lot of mistakes you can make once you've accumulated wealth. Uh, and so, so regardless of what profession or career you're in, the one that is particular to physicians is... Uh, this this idea of having too much money in a non-registered account, and particularly the non-registered account that's in your company, your corporate structure. There's such a powerful ability in Ontario to use that low rate of income tax on the first 500,000, assuming it's not clawed back and there's a bunch of other stuff there. But uh, there's such a there's such a powerful, you know, wealth generation tool available that you end up, you know, if you've even if you've done all of the all of the right things throughout your career to manage tax on an, on a year over year basis, you know, if you've got two, three, four, five million dollars in your company, um, which is, you know, call it some version of a pension, you've got a bunch of things you need you need to now worry about, and if you are unaware of those, then they're going to catch you by surprise at some inopportune moments. So one of them would be, and we'll talk about this in more detail in a bit, I believe, but uh, an income splitting. So income splitting would be how to get it out, but the, the big one really would be would be deemed disposition. And again, we did address this in our last top 10 list because not understanding it ahead of time is one problem, 
But when you've arrived at the end of your career or near the end of your career and you have not fully conceived of how this is going to affect you, um, it starts to become a problem because the transition of those assets with no planning has some fairly significant tax downsides. And you can immediate them, let's say, just prior to death, i.e., let's say you're getting older and you discover this in your, you know, let's say, long, happy life of 80 or 90. But there are steps you can take to remediate it, which are way more effective earlier, even late career. So in your late 50s, 60s, and, and if you're working at 70, the more time you have to accommodate for this problem, which is when you die, all of your income and all of your gains are going to be taxed all at once. And so that can be a pretty big problem for somebody who has been a disciplined saver, who's taken advantage of all of the different tax um, advantages that you can, i.e. through a corporation or maybe uh, um, some other structures, and not understanding how that is going to impact you, it's going to impact your family, it's going to impact um, the transition of wealth is, uh, is problematic. Like, like I said earlier, you know, having two, three million is not a bad mistake. I, I would not call that a mistake. It's definitely a good problem to have. But the problem is, as you say, at time of death or at time of closing or winding down the corporation, there's a dean disposition there, which triggers a humongous tax bill. Along the way, forget about deemed disposition, along the way, recently, as you and I talked about this, 2018, Bill Morneau came out with the tax on passive income. So even even it creates a problem, a tax problem along the way in your 70s, 80, 75, 80, as long as your money, your two, three million is sitting there and earning an interest, a passive income, you have tax issues there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of my colleagues are currently going through capital stripping as as recommended by their accountants. There are pros and there are cons to each of these strategies. Uh, and so I think it's important, as you say, Jamie, to talk about the proper planning of winding these down and getting into your personal hands with the most tax efficiency possible. And, and I think it's moving forward is having those type of uh, strategies. And some are better than others. Some have more pros, some have more cons, and it's important to understand which strategy works for you. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I, I um, you know, the, the, 2017 rules, 2017, I think it was it 2017 or 2018 that they were announced. I, I thought it was 2018. Okay. I'll, well, I can't recall either way. I do remember I was on vacation when I heard about them. Um, so, uh, <laughs> Good thing so you were on so, vacation. Yeah, it was not. Yeah. It was, it was an interesting uh, uh, thing to hear on the radio, but um, they, they significantly increased the complexity of planning for, you know, distribution of wealth in real time. So year over year and the transition of wealth, uh, let's say at death or at the sale of a business, call it, um, you know, there's other nuances. There's a concept called safe income, which is a tax issue that now most people don't have to deal with, but it can pop up and be a problem for uh, for some people. So anyway, so long story short, it is it is definitely something that that is, it's not, it's now part of law, like it or not. We're sort of five years into it. We all kind of understand what the rules are, what the name of the game is, and what strategies can be used around it. Um, whether it's you know various forms of surplus stripping, you know it's not all the same. There are more and less aggressive uh, you know 
tactics and techniques that can be recommended. But absolutely, I think that full knowledge at a consumer level, i.e. what the impacts are, not the nuances, but the impacts are something that you do need to understand uh, as you're going into retirement, particularly if you've been a good saver. That's right. And by no means are we saying that being a good saver is a problem. Being a good saver is a good thing to do. But now you're we're left with some issues that are, you know, stem from 2018 type of changes and also uh, deemed disposition rules. But it's it's important to know what they are and plan for it. Our third topic, which is about income splitting and not understanding income splitting. That's the that's the issue. The financial mistake is that we don't understand income splitting and how it works and how it could benefit us and how it can impact uh, our finances. And this ties to, again, some of that to too much money in the reg account or into the corporation. Let's elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually all assets. Um, it's something that you you need to understand kind of going into it and going into, I'm going to say any investment, any structure, anything is how does this allow me to do that? And so income splitting means you are, sorry, income splitting means you are equalizing the income between, you know, two spouses uh, in a relationship at any point in time. So you can income split you should income split, I guess, or you should try if you have spouses with equal earning power, it's, it's ideal. And there are some strategies that are, you know, available for income splitting in, um, you know, during your career. But a lot of the rules about income splitting open up once you are taking retirement income from a variety of sources, whether it's a RSP RIF, whether it's a, you know, a pension, uh, a you know, PPP or a CPPP. Uh, or dividends or payments from a corporation. And, and by the way, I think what I would say is this is something you need to be aware of. And the reason you need to be aware of is that it's a concept that is complicated enough that it requires professional assistance. I will say that is, is probably, unless you are extraordinarily well-informed and capable of good research and have the time to run into the tax act, which very few people do, um, you should have an accountant and a financial advisor, both who understand that so that they're not stepping on each other's toes. So the, the reason that we want, you know, the physicians to understand this is simply so they can advocate on behalf of their own financial health. So the concept is very similar is I don't need to know the inner workings of my, you know, my body to be able to ask smart questions about uh, treatment that's being prescribed uh, or recommended, but I should ask questions and I should, at the very least, find myself educated enough to make sure that I have have come to the conclusion that we're doing the best thing we can for me. And so it's a very similar approach to advocating for this. So advocacy around income splitting and understanding that it's going to occur uh, in any of the structures that you have is key. And then understanding where it may not be able to occur is also pretty helpful. Once you've retired and deregistered your medical professional corporation, you have an ability to create a new class of shares and have a spouse or just a, another person take over some shares of that company and therefore potentially begin to take some dividends. You have the ability to split certain types of pension income either before or after 65. It sort of depends where uh, and what that income is. 
there are lots of opportunities to split income. The question simply is, have you done it properly? Have you done it correctly? Uh, and most importantly, you don't want to split income that is not eligible because that income can be attributed back to the original owner of the asset. A lot of the things that you said as I was listening to you, I'm like, I get it. I get it. Oh, I understood that. I understood that. I'm afraid that for a lot of our listeners, they may say, I didn't understand that. <laughs> I did not follow. Um, and to your point, Jamie, because these are quite complex or they can get complex uh, if we wanted to do you know, different strategies of income splitting. And you've mentioned a few that I haven't even thought about uh, thus far, but it makes sense to me. Uh, but first, I, I needed to understand the, the background and the context, and I'm not sure that most of us do. And that is yep. why your point is very important. The point is, this is not for me, the doctor trying to do this on my own, right? The point is, make sure you get a, a good accountant and a good financial advisor who can say, hey, this is possible. This is what the strategy is out there. And this is how you can take advantage of strategy A, B, C, and sort of understand it that way. Uh, but but not looking into it or not understanding income splitting or to your point, income splitting the wrong way, you now have to face attribution rules from the CRA and that will get you into more trouble. And so um, the mistake here is not understanding that these type of strategies exist, that these actually exist and that they can be fairly complex. So please don't hurt yourself. Don't do this on your own. I mean, I think one of the, whether it's stated or not, one of the benefits of this podcast and a physician doing a podcast for physicians is, um, you know, you you obviously have a high degree of knowledge. Um, I think you can prove that you, to your peers that it's accessible by someone who's not got formal training. But one of the things we generally try to do, you, know, you and I, when we're, we're chatting and, and, and the podcast that I've done is put it into a sort of an advocacy, an advocacy or recommendation. And the recommendation is if someone is recommending you a strategy. So my my hope for for your listeners, if someone is recommending a strategy, you should have a series of things that you are sure that it does. And one of them is, is it enhances your income and minimizes tax, right? It enhances your wealth and minimizes tax, right? And so income splitting would be the easiest way of doing that. If you have, especially I should say, if you have taxpayers with significantly different income levels. So it should Absolutely. always be in the back of your head, especially as you approach retirement. Okay, how is this going to impact my long-term wealth and my long-term income? And how is it going to minimize that? And income splitting, once you are past age 55, 60, 65, should be top of mind. That's good. I, I'm glad you mentioned it because I was about to ask you, given tax rules and all, at what age should we engage in those type of discussions with our accountants and financial advisors? And you mentioned it, 55, 60s, sort of the right time to talk about it. Uh, it's funny, as we developed our top 10 list, a lot of our top 10 lists were mistakes that end up being mistakes that uh, that late career physicians have already made. So I would say not understanding income splitting throughout your wealth accumulation, call it process, et cetera, would be, would be that. So for example, so here's a great example that I know is near and dear to your heart, Boo. If you are sitting down with an accountant and that accountant says, I don't believe in incorporating, then they are also saying they don't believe in income splitting. Fair. And so if you are choosing not to incorporate, you are choosing to not allow yourself or avail yourself of a tool that allows you to split income. 
and so, yes, there are complexities to incorporating, but there are also significant advantages. Now, you may have a spouse who has an equal income of yours or both of you are an income and always will at the highest tax bracket. And that starts to be that starts to be reasoning why some of these benefits fade away, uh, or at least they're not benefits that could ever accrue to you. However, uh, we did talk about this last time. There are lots of there are a number of professionals who just simply say, I don't believe this is a good strategy and therefore we're not going to discuss it. That's not the right way to approach this. So understanding income splitting and how it affects you throughout your entire career, in particular, once you start saving significant uh, assets and, or you've kind of sort of secured, uh, once you've bought a house, right? I think that's it. Because for a lot of people, uh, a lot of Canadians, whether they're physicians or not, buying a house is sort of the first and primary and the most uh, the most salient piece of financial effort they're going to make for the first 20 years of their career. Once that's kind of done and you've got it, then moving on and understanding everything else around that would be where you would turn your sights. Very good. I, I actually have a two comments to what you said there. The first one is, you know, accountants or advisors who says don't incorporate, you're missing out on the concept of income splitting, but you're also missing out and not availing yourself to several other tools, i.e., you can't do a pension if you can't if you're not incorporated. And two, for those of you who you know understand and like whole life insurance, well, you can't get a coli, which is a corporately owned life insurance. Now you can get it on the personal side, but you can't do it on the corporate side, which has other advantages too. Uh, the other thing that, that I wanted to comment was Robert Kiyosaki challenged all this thing that we are just talking about. The fact that, you know, the the most important asset that we hold as as Canadians, physicians, is owning a house. And trust me, I did a whole podcast about the Canadian dream of owning a house. Um, and that is our primary asset. But Robert Kiyosaki put a wrench into all of that and says that a house is not an asset. And I, I mean, I see his point of view. And I have a few colleagues who, you know, bought into that idea that owning a house, primary residence, uh, is not the best thing to do. And for some it is, and for some it it, it isn't. But uh, it's very funny how we all have that concept of, of owning a house. To be a true Canadian is owning a house, having a barbecue, and play hockey, right? And so uh, as we live in Canada, we all want to be Canadians. And that is one of the first dreams is, is owning a house. So it's, it's very funny you brought that up. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I do know that there is a school of thought, you know, that renting is a better decision than buying. And then, you know, where where we are right now, well, where we were two or three years ago with real estate prices and growth as it was, particularly us Canadians, and in particular, those of us who live in the GTA or Vancouver or the greater Vancouver area, there are some areas where the numbers really do start to make some sense. I think what I would suggest as a foil to to that, you know, there's also a group of people who suggest that you should not have any registered plans at all, and therefore uh, no RSPs, no RIFs, uh, pensions, etc. Those are beliefs, again, as we've talked about in the past, that professionals usually have across the board. And I think I would say, be careful when you make a decision like that, because what you're giving up is a different tax strategy. My principal residence, or mine and my wife's principal residence, accumulates tax-free. It's a tax-free savings account. It doesn't provide income for me. 
but it is growing wealth at an X rate of return. I don't know what that's going to be by in the future, but I do know that if and when we dispose of our current residents, we will not pay any tax. And there is a benefit to doing that, specifically if, like many of the physicians that are, that are listening, you have an income potential that is higher, much higher than the average Canadian, and you do need places to wisely put those funds. So I think the the owning a house, not owning a house is a great discussion to have. It is, like I said, I'm not sold on one or the other. What I do think is if if you are not purchasing a piece of principal, a principal residence, then you need to understand what you are not getting rather than trying to understand the benefits in a vacuum, which is comparing the rate of return to you know, renting and then investing the difference elsewhere or buying and using that uh, that you know tax-free asset, if you will, and potentially all the expenses and frustrations that go along with it to to accumulate wealth because it is a it's a viable strategy. It may not be the best strategy, and I think ultimately when you look at that, you'd have to really ask what assumptions are you making to make that thing work. Uh, and that's an exercise we've done in the past when we've talked about whether permanent insurance or term insurance is the right decision. It all comes down to the assumptions that you need to make in order to make this. Uh, that assumption, that sort of strategy, I should say, work. They're not impossible. They are very, very realistic in some cases, um, but they are never the right or wrong answer. It's just another school of thought from uh, from Robert Kiyosaki, which I, I, you know, it just made me think. There is a book that is specifically about this that I am aware of, and I haven't read it, uh, but uh, actually another advisor, so in my business for whom I have lots of respect, has done exactly this. So he is a proponent of the strategy, understands it's not for everybody. But um, if I if we can figure it out before the end of the podcast, if I can quietly Google while we're talking, uh, otherwise, maybe you can we can put it as an addendum at the end. The book that Jamie is referring to is called The Wealthy Renter by Alex Avery. So let's move on to our fourth a financial mistake, which is the wealth objective at late career is no longer just about retirement, but it has to include legacy. So let's elaborate a little bit on that. This is kind of how I would talk about a financial plan to anybody. So financial plans, first of all, are just about a line of best fit. Here's what the future looks like. Um, it's not a guarantee. It's not anything else. Um, the second piece of it is there are really three stages to to a financial plan. And once you reach, once you can certify stage one is done, then automatically it becomes an engagement for stage two or stage three. First one is, am I going to make it to, to retirement? So am I going to get there and all, what are all the things I need to do? And I'll say in terms of that would be, I want to buy my house. I want to, in the case that I do, I want to make sure my mortgage is paid off and I want to make sure I'm saving properly. And I want to make sure this is that. So in that stage, you want, you want to make sure that by the time you've retired, you're fully secure. Right. And then that also can mean to make sure that you've got insurances in place, et cetera. Once you've reached retirement and it's fully funded, then you want to make sure you can enjoy retirement, spend money without fear of depleting it, sleep at night, understand what, what your retirement looks like and all that stuff. I think we're going to get into that later. Once those two are, are certain, and if you understand that there is going to be a surplus, then the last stage or the last problem you have is your legacy. So how are you going to effectively transition and, and responsibly transition your wealth. And so the effective one is a numbers game. So how are we going to minimize taxes? You know, 
where is it going to go and so on and so forth. The, the responsible one is who's it going to go to? Are we going to give it to, you know, our children? Are we getting to give the same amount? Are we going to give different assets? Uh, are we going to give to charity? Are we going to give to the community? So that's sort of the, the responsible. And that's not a judgment call from my point of view. That's very much personal for the individuals we're talking about. But how are we going to do this properly? And how are we going to do this effectively? And so those are two things that most physicians, again, given their income potential, and assuming we have someone who spends less than they earn, most physicians are going to have this issue in one way or another. I have money, you know, I have money in my corporation, I have money in my, my pension, I have money in my RSP or my RIF, I have money in any number of places, uh, you know, uh, home, uh, rental property, cottage. There's lots of things that, you know, high income earners do that need to be addressed and should be addressed well before you hit the end of your career because your options start to close once you are no longer generating your own income. Before we continue, I think this is worth repeating it again, Jamie. So the objective of wealth building at this stage is no longer about retirement only. So it's about uh, legacy as well. But as you're saying in the planning process, we are planning for three elements in fact. Number one, getting to retirement. Number two, enjoying retirement. And number three, effective and responsible transition of wealth at time of death. Unfortunately, a lot of us build number one and number two and forget about number three. But to your point, to build number three, it needs to start with number one and number two, maybe even at that stage to think about the transition of wealth. Many of us think about that when it's too late and the doors have closed. And we're going to talk about that later in the show. So this last point is a very important point. And uh, in the pre-show, I shared with you that I've oriented my my financial plan uh, over the last, you know, eight to nine years when I started doing this and understanding this, I started to correct course. And as part of my correcting course, uh, obviously, is getting to retirement and hoping to enjoy retirement. I never thought of it that way, but it does make sense the way you put it. But at the same time, I was at the age of 40 something thinking already about transition of wealth. And so I did it quite early because I was trying to achieve all these three targets. There are certain positions I took and there are certain strategies I took to maximize all three at the same time. And that's why I shared with you that I'm a big proponent of life insurance and life insurance as an asset, uh, because it hits the third point really, really well, in addition to hitting second point really, really well. And I'm not so much about getting to retirement because I I make a, a decent income. So I started quite young and early thinking about point number three, which is effective and responsible transition of wealth. Is that is that doing it too soon? Is that a mistake? Uh, what your thoughts about that? And the second thing is, as you pointed out, rightfully pointed out, is as we age, certain doors start to close. For example, certain strategies start to close, certain tools no longer are available. And one of these that come immediately to my mind is obviously life insurance. They start to close as we grow older. So your, your comments about that. Any tax strategy, like wealth accumulation, they're they're accretive. 
they take time to get going. If you start saving for retirement the day before you retire, you're going to have a very disappointing retirement. If you start tax planning right before a tax event, you, you have very little available to you. And so if you are no longer earning an income, for example, you know, I mean, it's very, very simply, it's it almost sounds like it's a, uh, it's, a it's obvious, but you, you, there's no point in incorporating when you're 60 to have, well, I mean, there's not no point. There's a limited amount of, of justification if you're going to retire within three to five years. You know, corporation is, is not going to give you a huge amount of benefit as opposed to earlier in your career when you can really see the benefits of that happening over the long term. Same thing as, you know, transitioning. You mentioned life insurance. I mean, life insurance, the only time life insurance is really profitable uh, when you do it right before an event is if you buy it and then die really quickly, which is not what we want to have happen with any strategy. And so life insurance is a great asset to have for a very, very long period of time, because by the time you have owned it for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you're looking at a, you know, a, again, you're not, it's not going to be the best asset you ever own, but it's going to be very dependable. It's going to earn you, you know, inflation plus three to 5%, right? So, uh, and so that's, that's a, that's actually sounds, sounds low relative to what you can get in a, you know, a, equity only portfolio, but it is a admirable rate of return, much like any bond and fixed income, and it is tax efficient, right? You're not being taxed on it. So um, there's some pretty strong arguments to be made that it is one of the things you should be doing. So that would be an example of something that needs time and a door that closes, not entirely, we, we've insured people in their 70s. And so it's possible to own insurance beneficially for someone who's getting older, but it is much more practical and much more cost-effective to do it earlier. And it, it certainly gleans, um, generates more benefits. And then, you know, just, just many other many other strategies, like I said, that, you know, income split we talked about is something that will help you with your estate plan. It allows you to get more money from certain structures at a lower marginal tax rate if you are doing it properly. So those are the doors that can close. And it's not, there's nothing that slams shut. There's no opportunities that go away kind of statutorily, i.e. in law, but the longer you wait to make these decisions, the more you have a problem that is going to be crystallized at the event of your death or the second of yours or your spouse's death, depending on how you've planned things. Um, but either way, if you don't start early, you lose that sort of accretive year-over-year -year benefit that you can gain from any number of the strategies that we've talked about and, and some that we haven't. Just coming back to the topic of insurance, uh, I mean, you're right. There's no law that says you can't insure someone at 79. That, that's not written in law. But what becomes a problem is, you know, the older we get, the more... Someone someone said this to me, the more conditions and medical conditions we accumulate, sort of like hockey cards. So the older we get, the more hockey cards we collect. And so when the more hockey cards we collect, the less it, it is feasible to get an insurance product. And so it's not that you can't buy an insurance at 79. It's just that it becomes financially prohibitive uh, to get an insurance product at 79 when you've collected all these hockey cards throughout your life. Yeah, I mean, let me let me clarify that, too, because the issue is not how many hockey cards you have. Is Do you have less hockey cards or more hockey cards than the average 79-year-old? Fair. Um, so you, when you're buying insurance, you are you are being rated, and this is in fact when you when you walk in a physician through insurance, and there is a rating, let's say for uh, a health concern, physician will say that doesn't make any sense. You can live a perfectly normal life 
uh, if you have this condition for a perfectly normal amount of time? And the answer is yes, comma, but if you look at it from an insurance point of view, if an individual is not compliant on medication, if there are other confounding factors, et cetera, that person's mortality is all of a sudden a lot higher. So that's how an insurance company thinks. So when you're thinking about insurance as a strategy, I would never recommend someone wait until their 70s to get insurance. However, if you have gone through life and you have not done it yet, and it is presented as an opportunity, I wouldn't knock it off as a as something because it is not more expensive. It's it's more of a cash flow item. So it is costs more of your cash flow. But if you live to life expectancy, then you can plan with insurance to be just as effective with the rate of return that I mentioned earlier, three to 5% over inflation, as if you started early. The problem is, again, it's a cash flow problem rather than a uh, rather than an effectiveness problem. And that cash flow sometimes is the thing that's going to be prohibitive. I just can't afford to make a, you know, X payment because I need to live off of it, no matter what my estate planning may or may not look like. And therefore that door is now potentially closed. Right. So I don't want to prolong this too long, but you're actually right in the sense that someone who buys the life insurance later in life pays for the premium and dies right after the rate of return is actually humongous. So, so it's actually the rate of return is actually better as we age, but, but the problem is the cash flow issue. It, it becomes potentially too expensive or very expensive. That is financially prohibitive. Yeah. Agreed. So friends in the podcast land, this has been a long, long podcast uh, to date. And my dialogue and conversation with Jamie is much longer. So what I'm going to do is split this podcast into two parts and you've listened to part number one. So please be uh, on the lookout and pay attention for part number two, which will happen very, very soon. So before I leave the folks in the podcast land, I just want to remind uh, the audience that we do have a financial literacy conference for physicians happening on February 2nd, 2024. It is called Code Green, Financial Literacy Conference for Physicians and Dentists, happening on February 2nd, 2024, with all sorts of topics, vast array of topics for physicians and dentists, with numerous experts in the finance industry. So please uh, learn about it and come and visit our website at www codegreenfinancial.com. Again, it's www.codegreenfinancial.com to browse and see if you be interested in registering for the conference. We are definitely looking forward to meeting you guys and girls there. So uh, please pay attention for part number two happening soon with our continued conversation with Jamie List. How is my financial health, Doc? podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice.